morning, church. Good to see you guys. Uh, so, hey, kids, you guys are dismissed. So uh, elementary age, like preschool through fifth grade. Um, if you're in middle or high school, I'm afraid you're in here with us today because most of the middle and high schoolers are away this weekend at youth camp. They should be finishing up, I think, their final session right about now and then jumping on the road to head back. So let's be praying for the youth as they come back, of course, praying for Traveling Mercies, praying for the youth leaders who've been with them all weekend, uh, and most of all, just praying for the work that the Lord, the ongoing work that the Lord wants to continue, uh, just in each of their hearts as they come down, uh, kind of off the mountain, and uh, you know, just pray that the, the enemy's not gonna pluck those seeds away that have been sown over the course of the, uh, of the weekend. Uh, one quick thing I wanna mention about um, the announcements that Pastor Jeff gave, that sermon discussion group that meets on Wednesday nights um, is exactly that, it's a discussion group. And the good news about that group is that I'm not gonna be there. So you're not gonna have to hear from me everything you already heard from me on Sunday. But this is your opportunity to talk with one another about the ways that the Lord ministered to you through the sermon or just through the text. Uh, it's your opportunity to talk about where I got it wrong and where you guys have a better idea about it. But it's just a neat time um, just to kind of exchange uh, thoughts and, and again, just share the things that the Lord's speaking to you uh, as you journey through his words. So that Wednesday night group is a great uh, opportunity uh, as we go here uh, through the summer. So um, I think, feels like there was one more thing I was supposed to mention, but perhaps it'll come to me at some point. So let's pray. We have a great text uh, this morning. Oh, I was, here's what I was going to say. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hands and we'll bring you ones. Good news, next week we're going to have some new Bibles that are large print. So maybe they'll actually be of some use to, to somebody. But uh, for this week, last week on the small print Bibles, and if you need one, just raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. Uh, you can use a Bible on your phone. Uh, any Bible is a good uh, Bible. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless uh, his, his word as we go to it today. So Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you uh, for all the work that you're doing, Lord, in us and through us here as a church body. Lord, we thank you for the work that you're doing uh, with the kids up there at camp this weekend, and we pray that you'd bless them. Lord, give them safe travel as they come back. Lord, pray just you're working in their hearts, Lord, those things that you've spoken to each of them individually over the course of this weekend. Lord, we pray that you would do that same thing for us here this morning. Lord, as we continue our worship of you, Lord, by going to your word, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, Lord, and that you would just give us ears to hear what he would say to each of us, Lord, as your church both individually, Lord, as well as uh, collectively. And so we thank you, Lord. We pray your blessing on this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 14 through 29, and we're actually making some pretty steady progress through Mark's account of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, last week's text, we remember, was uh, truly remarkable. It was a little mysterious, and surely it was uh, a miraculous text as we looked at the transfiguration of Jesus, right? We remember where Jesus gave just Peter and James and John. He gave them a real glimpse of his glory as he was transfigured before them. 
Uh, he just allowed just a, a sum of his radiant glory just to shine forth there high on top there of Mount Hermon. And what a wonderful encouragement. I hope that it was as we were reminded yet again that that miracle is such a wonderful picture of what I believe is happening to each and every one of us more and more each day, right? As that glory of Jesus that is now in us, right? Christ in us, the hope of glory, that glory is now being slowly revealed to the world around us. And when we left off in our text, we saw that Jesus with Peter and James and John, they're headed back kind of down the mountain and, and the disciples, no doubt, their minds are just spinning at this point as they're trying to just process what they had just seen and everything they had just experienced up there on the mountaintop. But as we move ahead now in the next section of Mark's account, we're going to see what happens when they come back down from the mountain. And we're going to see that just as they reached the bottom, remember they had left the other nine disciples down there, just as they reached the bottom, look what it says in verse 14 of Mark chapter 9. It said, and when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. So no sooner had Jesus stepped foot back off the mountain than he's immediately met with this conflict. And in this case, it's our good old friends, the Jewish religious leaders, right? The scribes, the lawyers, right? The experts of the law. And they're arguing here with the disciples. Now remember again, remember where we are at this point. We are up about, we're 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee in this region of Caesarea Philippi. We said it's the epicenter, remember, of pagan worship. And this was an area that would have been avoided by the Jews as much as possible. And yet these scribes, here they are on this relentless mission just to oppose Jesus. Apparently they must have followed him up here on that fault-finding mission of theirs, and we're going to see that they thought they had found some fault. Now, in this case, it wasn't with Jesus, but at least it was with his followers. Because look what it says next in verse 15. It says, immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. So just like we've seen before, even up here in this kind of hotbed of pagan worship, the reputation of Jesus had preceded him. The crowd starts to recognize him. They flock to him. And so here's Jesus now walking right into the middle of this argument. And in verse 16, it says that he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Now, I don't know. I just see Mama Bear coming out here a little bit, right? It's like he, the first thing Jesus does is he comes down and he asks these Jewish religious leaders, what are you putting into the minds of my guys? And what's interesting, we notice that the scribes have no answer. We're going to see in the verses that follow that also the disciples don't have an answer. And so as I read this, I just see kind of in my mind's eye, there was probably this really awkward silence 
right here, the scribes are looking over at the disciples, and the disciples are looking over at the, at the scribes. Neither one of them wants to answer Jesus for, for their own reasons, which we're going to see. But instead, look at what Mark records for us in verse 17. It says, then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Okay, now this is quite a scene, right? And it's quite a contrast, right? It's an incredible contrast to what we've just witnessed up there on the mountain, right? Peter, James, John up there worshiping. And now we go straight from that experience, that glimpse of the glory of Jesus. By far, the most extraordinary moment that those three men had had with Jesus to date. We go right from that now to this scene, which is complete with the disputing scribes and a distraught father and a demon-possessed boy and these defeated disciples. And let me tell you, this is not at all by chance. But instead, it illustrates a very important truth for us in our lives as followers of Jesus, that the Christian life is a life of both hills and valleys. Right, way, way back in the book of Deuteronomy, it's the point where the Lord is just laying out this promise to his people of this life and of this land that he was going to give them after they had crossed over the Jordan and entered into the promised land. It's that land and that life which we remember from our study through the book of Joshua. Remember that the promised land for us is an Old Testament picture of that New Testament reality of the spirit-filled life that every one of us are called to and that we're supposed to be walking in. But even here, right, the Lord is very clear to tell them both geographically and I believe spiritually, right, experientially. In Deuteronomy 11, it says, but the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys. And we know from our own experience just how true that this is, right? None of us live up on the mountaintop. Where do we live? We live down in the valleys. And in just the course of one single day, any one of us as disciples of Jesus, we can quickly move from the glory of heaven right into the attacks of hell. Because what we see illustrated here is Peter, James, and John, they've come right from the, the glory there atop Mount Hermon. They come right down to this collision with the religious leaders. And even more seriously, they come into a life and death kind of a confrontation with the devil. So there really, there's some biblical precedent for the reality that it's very often, it's just after a time of great spiritual victory that we can be quickly confronted by satanic opposition. I think, of course, of Elijah. You know, in the book of 1 Kings, you remember he has that amazing victory there right on top of Mount Carmel, right? And you know the story from 1 Kings 18. He gets called into this showdown with the false prophets of Baal. 
And remember, Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and God shows up. And then Elijah, what does he do? He hacks up all those prophets into pieces, right? Read it yourself. It's right there, right? But it's this extraordinary, this public victory for the Lord and the victory for the Lord's prophet over all of these false prophets. And yet it, it is then immediately after this, right as we get into 1 Kings chapter 19, we find Elijah gets threatened by wicked Queen Jezebel. And what does he do? He had just stood up to all of the prophets of Baal. Now this one wicked queen makes a threat against him and he runs and he hides down in this remote sort of secluded place in the south where he says he just wants to die, right? In 1 Kings 19, it says, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough, now Lord, just take my life. Right from this point of this spiritual high and then he drops down to this incredibly low point of despair and discouragement and that can so often happen to any of us as God's people because the enemy right our real enemy Satan is always looking to counter whatever it is that God is doing now I hope I'm not the first one to break this news to you but the Bible teaches that we are in this constant kind of a it's a cosmic spiritual conflict against evil forces, right? The Bible is crystal clear that there is a spiritual world. There is a highly organized realm of the spirit that's made up on one side with, of God and his holy angels, and then the devil and his fallen angels or demons, they make up the other side, the other aspect of that invisible world. And it's as the Apostle Paul explains to the Ephesians, he says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He says we wrestle against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. All of these different rankings of highly organized, almost in a military way, the, these forces of evil. And so we're in the midst of this battle for the lives and the souls of human beings. And I think it's just like we see here on our text today, we have this poor boy who was being controlled by a demon, right? By the power of Satan. And there wasn't anyone there who could possibly set him free. And in the very same way, we have multitudes of people today all around us who are likewise controlled by Satan and who are in the process of being destroyed by Satan. I mean, you just think of what's happening in our world. You think about what's happening to our culture. You think about all of the, the lives that are bound up in uh, addictions and anxiety and in different forms sometimes of mental illness, just bound up by secular humanism and materialism and just self-ism right, and by false religion sometimes, bound up by these powers of darkness and these spiritual hosts of wickedness, right, that just like this boy, these things are seizing people and they're throwing people down. And whenever we see a powerful move of God's spirit, we can be sure 
that the enemy is going to redouble their efforts just to counter that attack. And we see it happens culturally, but we know that it also happens individually. And all of this that I'm sharing, it's not that the Lord would have us to live our lives in fear of it. Right? Greater is he that's in us than he that it's in the, the, who's in the world. But he absolutely would have us to be aware of it. He wants us to know this reality. So much so that this account that we're studying here today, as we're watching Peter and James and John come down from high atop that Mount of Transfiguration, they come immediately into this encounter at the base of the mountain. All three of the synoptic Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them include this account focused on this father and this demon-possessed boy happening right after the transfiguration. Because all three of those authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they could see the importance of putting these two opposing pictures together for us. Again, to teach us that our Christian experience is one of mountains and valleys, or of high places and low places, or even of, of glory and of gloom, you might say. So we have this painful episode of this desperate human need and the failure of the disciples to be able to deal with it, and it contrasts so sharply with just the glory of that transfiguration we have just saw, and it's just a reminder to us of the reality of living here in this world, especially in the absence of Jesus. Right, we're in a battle, we are in this war, but God does give us, doesn't he give us these wonderful reprieves? He gives us these wonderful seasons, those mountaintop experiences, right? Those times of transfiguration where we get refreshed and we get strengthened and we really things, we start to see things so clearly and it's beautiful and they are times of illumination for us, but they're also times of preparation for us because when those times are done, what is it? It's back to the battle. It's back right to the front lines. And all during this, he's teaching us and preparing us and growing us. Just because when we come down from the mountain, we come right back into that spiritual battle. And as we go through this passage, we're going to see, it's going to teach us some critically important truths that will really help us to be successful in the battle and to be more successful, we hope, than those poor nine disciples who couldn't deliver this poor boy from the demon. So we've got this father telling Jesus again, the end there of verse 18, he lays out his desperate plight and the condition of his son, who probably from the language, this boy's probably just about four or five years old, right? But the father's talking about this desperate condition of him at the hands of this demon. At the end of verse 18, he says, I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And now going on into verse 19, it says that Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now some of your translations might say something like, you faithless people, how long must I put up with you? Now any way we translate it, it sort of seems a little bit out of character for Jesus, right? It's not often that we see Jesus express his emotions, but this is definitely one of those times. 
See that little word, O, that's included right there, right? O, faithless generation. Well, that O is pretty rare in our Bibles. And in fact, there are only three total times where Jesus uses this kind of language, right? It's an exclamation, right? It's what's called an exclamatory particle, right? It always expresses an intense emotion or a sense of urgency or importance or even an exasperation. And Jesus uses it in this case because he is at the point of utter exasperation with these people and specifically here with his nine disciples because of their faithlessness and their unbelief. And I think that what's so interesting as we read this New Testament account here is that his statement right here, right? Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? It is almost a direct quote from Numbers chapter 14, verse 17, when the Lord says to Israel as a nation, he says, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? You know, it's interesting, again, we read this passage every time I think, wow, Jesus sounds a lot like the Lord did when he was addressing unbelieving Israel, right? We know as you read the Old Testament, so many times you're reading through the story of God leading his people Israel out of Egypt and then through the wilderness and finally on into the promised land. And there are those times where you just sense that God himself, that he is simply exasperated with these people. And that's hard to do, right, to drive God to that point. God is patient, and he's slow to anger. He's abounding in mercy. He is loving, and he is gracious. Of course, he is all those things. And we realize that, and we understand that, and we appreciate that, and we emphasize that. But we also have to realize that there are certain things that God does expect of us. And he expects us to make progress. He expects us to grow, and specifically, he expects our faith to grow. And the one thing that the Lord seems to really express his frustration over with his people most often is our unbelief. It's our faithlessness. God does not appreciate us not believing him. And we can understand why. It's because he is always faithful, right? Paul tells Timothy, in fact, that if we are faithless, that he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself, right? His faithfulness to his promises is simply part of who he is. He can't be anything else. And so when we don't believe him, we're really kind of questioning his very character, and God doesn't like that at all. You know, you think about the children of Israel. I mentioned that moment back in Numbers chapter 14, and that has to do with them entering into the promised land the first time they came to it. And remember the story where they sent the spies in and the spies come back, and there's 10 of the spies that say, oh, we can't do this. There's giants over there. We might as well just forget it. And then two of the spies, right, Joshua and Caleb, they come back with this faith-filled report. They said, you know what? We can do this. God's got this. Forget those giants. God will deal with them. But what happens, of course, the majority of the people 
went with the faithless report of the majority of the spies. And so the people decide not to take God at his word, not even to try to enter into the promised land. And the Lord was not happy at all with that, at all. Right? In fact, he was angry with that. In fact, he was actually exasperated at that. And that's where he says, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complains against me? Because these people who are now saying, oh, you know, God's not going to be with us. God's not going to take care of us. What they're actually saying is God's not going to fulfill the promises that he made to us. And think about this. They are talking about the one, they're talking about the God who just delivered them from Egypt, who just brought the plagues upon the Egyptians and yet spared Israel. They're talking about the one who just opened up the Red Sea for them to walk through on dry land. And then when the Egyptian army attempted to follow after them, it just as quickly closed up the Red Sea on the soldiers. Right? They're talking about the one who provided water out of a rock in the desert for them. They're talking about the one who's been raining down bread from heaven every day to take care of them in the wilderness. And now as they come to the very place where God had promised to take them into the promised land, they now say, he's not going to do it. God's not really faithful. We can't really trust him. And the Lord says, are you kidding me right now? Seriously, that's where we are. And in a sense, I think that Jesus is expressing exactly the same sort of frustration here, but it is not toward this poor, desperate dad. It's directed primarily right toward his own disciples because they were acting just like the rest of this faithless generation that they were supposed to be different from. He says, boys, I have been with you for so long how many miracles do you need to see? How many miracles have you already seen? And in fact, how many miracles have I already done through you? Because remember, they hadn't just seen Jesus deliver countless people already from demonic possession. But remember, back in Mark chapter 6, they were also sent by Jesus they were given the power and the authority to do just that themselves. And what did they do? They did just that themselves. They were healing diseases. They were delivering people from demonic oppression all throughout the region of the Galilee. But now suddenly at this point, they're unable to do it here for this poor child. And Jesus says it is because of their faithless unbelief. And he is exasperated by it. And now, because he is faithful, he's about to take matters into his own hands, and he is going to help this boy. Look back at the very end of verse 19. So after he rebukes his faithless disciples, he then says, bring him to me, right? Bring the boy to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Right? This evil spirit knows his end is near. He knows he is now face to face with the creator of the universe. And now seeing Jesus here stepped onto the scene, the demon makes this destructive display of the power that he has over this child. And so verse 21, so Jesus asked his father, 
How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. So this is interesting to me because Jesus continues and he asks this distraught father this kind of a background question, but he doesn't ask it because he doesn't know the answer, right? Jesus knows the answer to this question, but I believe he asks it because the father needs to be reminded and because the scribes and the disciples need to hear, and I think because we need to hear this morning to understand that what was happening here was an ongoing and a chronic and a desperate lifelong situation. And I think it simply reminds us of the kind of painful destruction that our enemy wants to introduce into every life that he touches. And just to be reminded of the true destructive power that he possesses, this was a hopelessly impossible situation, right, where the enemy had a deep, strong, a long-standing foothold there. And I think that so often we can look at those same kinds of chronic situations, right? The big circumstances in our own lives. And we see that same sense. It can be so overwhelming just like this was. And so often that's all we see when we're seeing it through a faithless perspective, right? Aren't we all so very, very adept Right? We can see the reality of the circumstances of our lives. We can see the realities of the trials in our lives. We see those trials and the realities with this crystal clear vision, right? It's like we see Goliath standing there right in front of us. And we see, it, you know, this thing is 10 feet tall. And we see it in all of its taunting threats. And we see it in all of that powerful armor. And we see the weaponry. And we see that thing ready to do massive destruction in our life. Right? I know everything about this trial. I know everything about the impossibility that's there in front of me. I know everything about the reality of the defeat that I'm about to experience. I know everything about all of that, don't I? But what I do not know, apart from my faith, I don't know the reality of God's ability to do the impossible. It's my faith that allows me to see that in spite of everything else that I see in front of me. But what happens when I look with a faithless perspective, so often I react just like we see the Father do here. I very tentatively ask Jesus, look what he says there at the end of verse 22. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Okay, if he can do anything, now what kind of a question is that to ask Jesus? He spoke the world into existence, right? And, and, you know, we can read a passage like this. And we can read it in the comfort of our pew on a, on a Sunday morning. Or we can read it with our coffee, you know, in our devotional time. And we think, oh, what's wrong with this guy? Right? What, what do you mean if he can do anything? What kind of a question is that to ask Jesus? You know, well, he probably didn't know anything. He probably didn't know anything about Jesus, Right? Remember where we are. We're up in Caesarea Philippi, this entire region just drowning in paganism. And here's this man, 
just like most of the people that we know around us, he probably lives up here in this area, and he probably had only heard about Jesus. Remember, Jesus is just visiting up here. And all this man hears is that there's this Jesus, he has some kind of a power, and in this desperate situation, he goes to seek out Jesus with his son, but he doesn't find Jesus. What does he find? He finds the disciples. Those guys couldn't fix the problem because Jesus is away up on the mountain. So at this point, we can't really blame this man, right? He is just hoping against hope that somehow there was going to be an answer to the situation. And so very honestly, he says, look, your followers couldn't seem to help. I'm not sure if you can help, but I desperately need your help if you are able to help. And I just love the way that Jesus answers him. Look at verse 23. Jesus says to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And that is such a one, it's a star worthy verse by itself. But I think that what it actually says in the original language, literally, is even more wonderful. Right? The, the New Living Translation actually best captures the sense of what the text says. Because what Jesus literally says to this man is, he says, what do you mean if I can, Jesus asked, anything is possible if a person believes. Jesus says, look, you're asking the wrong question. The real question isn't whether I can, right? That's a settled issue. The real question is, do you have the faith to believe that I can, right? You're asking me if I can do anything, but let me ask you, can you do this one thing, and that's just can you believe? And that really is the entire heart of this entire passage. Because the greatest lesson that we're to learn from this passage is not simply that Jesus can deliver people from demons, which he's about to do for this boy if you didn't yet see that coming, right? That's not the supreme lesson of the passage. That is big enough, right? And that is wonderful enough. But the lesson here isn't supremely about the exorcism of evil spirits. All that does is it sets the context for the big, big lesson that Jesus wants us to learn from this passage. And the big, big lesson that he wants us to learn here has to do with our faith. Right? The main lesson of this miracle is the power of our faith in the power of the Lord Jesus to overcome the enemy, the kind of faith that makes all things possible. Right? It's the importance of, for, of our faith for life in the valley. Right? Because we're engaged constantly in this spiritual battle. And so Jesus is using these events to teach his disciples and to teach this father and to teach the crowd and to teach us about a faith that has that kind of power even in the realm of the spirit. The kind of power to see things done that are humanly impossible. right? To see things done that are only possible to God. So... I think we need to pause just for a moment. We need to back up the truck just a bit and just ask ourselves a fundamental question. What really is faith? Right? We talk about faith all the time, right? But again, I don't think there's a better definition for faith in the Bible than Hebrews 11, of course, in verse 1. It says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying about faith 
is that faith is just this absolute confidence that what God has promised or what God has said in his word, that he will do that, even when we can't even see how that could possibly work out, right? And again, I think the living Bible in this case is so helpful in the way they translate this same verse because it asks this, it says, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that something we want is going to happen. It is the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we cannot see it up ahead. So faith is believing something to be true simply because God said it is. And continuing to believe it even when all of the circumstances rise up against it and try to just overwhelm everything that God has said to us. Most simply, Faith is a trust in God. It's a trust in his word and in his promises. It's a trust in his word and his promises and his character that has been proven through our own history of him being faithful in our experience with him. Right? When his word and his promises and his character and the history that we have, sometimes those are the only things that we have that we can put our trust in, in the midst of a situation like that. And this is why it frustrates him when we are faithless. It's why he rebuked the disciples here at their failure to walk by faith. Because really what it was for them is it was their failure to remember that long history they'd already had with him. To remember everything they, they knew about him because of that history. Everything that they had personally experienced in their relationship with the Lord. So here you have these disciples who are living way below their knowledge of God in terms of their faith. They're living way below their experience with God because of their unbelief. And I have to say that is something that is so easy for any of us to slip into as Christians. And I will tell you, I am as tempted to slip into it as anyone else. And I need this kind of rebuke from the word of God at those times when my faith starts to falter. Right? Like, Bill, what are you doing? Why are you living below your history with God when he has proven time and time again to be nothing but faithful to you? Why in this situation, why are you moaning and whining and why are you anxious and afraid? Why are you all of these things living so far below what you know to be true about him? And there are times when I need that kind of a rebuke to my heart. I, I know that none of the rest of you do and I know that usually I'm preaching to myself every week up here, but that's the same rebuke, right, for all of us as Christians, every one of us who's walked with the Lord for any amount of time. And so, yeah, I think Jesus comes in strong here to say effectively, there is no reason for our faithlessness. Every one of us has reason enough for a robust faith in the Lord, right? And so as Christians, we, we must not live as if we don't have some kind of a past history with God. A history that we can look back on and we can see the way he's miraculously worked in our lives. This history that we each have with him of this uninterrupted, unfailing faithfulness in our lives. And then to be able to stop when we come up against those obstacles. 
right? When we see Goliath there right in front of us, he shows up. And just to realize at that moment that what Jesus has always been in my life, he is also going to be in this situation. But as I wait for that to prove true, I need to persevere and I need to do it, what? By faith. And I just need to live up to that level of my experience and I need to build up the faith that I do have. Right? And I think that it causes us in those moments to cry out just what we're going to see the Father cry out next. Jesus says, you need to believe. Look at verse 24. It says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think this is one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. First of all, because we're going to see that Jesus is going to do exactly what the man asks him to do, right? What little faith he does have is about to be greatly strengthened. But most of all, I think it's encouraging because this is a prayer that Jesus will always answer. He will always help us build our faith and battle our unbelief. And it's ironic because what this probably pagan father has just unknowingly expressed is sort of what we could call the great paradox of faith and unbelief experienced by each and every one of God's people all through the ages, right? Because this is where our old nature rubs up against our new nature, right? We want to believe. We know that we should believe. And yet, we find ourselves unable to believe. We find ourselves filled with doubt. And we hate this kind of an inward, unreasonable kind of contradiction. And yet, we continue to struggle with it. I don't know if you've been in that place as a Christian where you come up against an awful, awful, terrible trial. And you stop and you look at it and you say, Okay, Lord, I do believe that you can get me through this but I need you to help me with that part of me that doesn't believe it. So how does it happen practically for us? Right, well, just think through this with me. The single greatest enemy of faith is the unbelief that happens when a person doubts God and doubts God's ability or desire to act in some sort of an impossible situation. And the problem with that kind of a person at the core is that that person simply doesn't know God very well. And the solution to not knowing God very well is for that person to continue to grow in their knowledge of God. And there is no greater place in all the world to grow in our knowledge of God than to grow where? In his word, in the Bible. Because this book is the single greatest revelation of him in the whole world. The scriptures are very clear, right? Paul told the Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Or more simply, faith comes by hearing God's word. Because we learn to really know all about God from what he reveals to us in his word, right? And you cannot trust who you do not know. So the number one way we build our faith and we battle our unbelief is through our growth in the word of God. 
And so you may be saying, look, my faith is small, or, or like this man, you're saying, look, I do believe, but I need help with my unbelief. Or maybe you're just kind of in a perpetual state where you feel like you just have very little faith. Well, how does that change? It's God's word. It's God's word, first and foremost, that builds us up in our faith because it's as we take in the word of God, right, and we meditate on it and we really assimilate it into our lives and we read about all the things that God has done in the past, here's what happens. God wants us to be able to read our Bible. And as we read through the history of all of the stories in the Bible, what happens is we start to see parallels in the Bible of our own experience in our life. And what God wants you to know is that what he did in that situation for those people, you can expect him to do the very similar things in your situation and in your life. Right? Because speaking of the whole history of the Jewish people that are recorded for us, Paul tells us that these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction. Right? That's why we love the Old Testament. That's why we love to teach the Old Testament even on a Sunday morning. Because it's this rich history of God's gracious and faithful dealings with his people. And just his continued care and his nurturing of his people. Even when they didn't deserve it. Right? Because it's in those moments where your faith may be faltering that it's at those times that the Holy Spirit will bring all of these things and bring those stories and bring these verses right to your remembrance. And you'll say, yes, he protected Joseph. Yes, he delivered Daniel. Yes, he forgave Jacob. Yes, he was faithful to Abraham. Yes, he always does provide for his people. He did all of those things for them in their lives. And I know he'll continue to do those very same things things in my life as well. I am not going to be the first Christian to whom these promises don't apply. And we turn in the word and we find a wonderful promise in his word that speaks to the trial that we're in. And what do we do? We let that promise then start to overwhelm our doubt. And we let that promise then start to shape our heart and strengthen our mind and our soul, right? We grow in our knowledge of him and what he's done. And as we do that, then he brings us through some particular trial. And then what happens? We never have to doubt his ability again in that kind of a trial. And we move to the next one. Maybe right now you're in a situation where you're looking at Goliath and you cannot possibly imagine how this is ever going to change. Right? You don't know how this is going to happen and you don't know what to do and you feel like, you know, my faith is just so weak. Well, ask the Lord to help you with your unbelief and watch the way that he will use his word to encourage you and the way that he'll also bring his people around you to build you up. Because the second critical way that he will help us with our unbelief is that our faith is strengthened directly through the faith of others. Right? So building our faith, battling our unbelief, not only through our growth in the word of God, but it happens through our fellowship with the people of God. And this is why the Bible is so clear that we must, as his people, we must consistently gather together. Right? In Hebrews 10, it says that we're not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. 
We must meet together as God's people. And here's the truth, you guys. Meeting together means we're not just all sitting in the same building together. Meeting together means we're meeting. It means that we're crossing paths and we're sharing life and we're sharing stories. And that's why we stand up here week after week and we emphasize, you know, get plugged in, go to a life group, get into a small group, come to the Friday night fellowship, right? Get into a place where you are doing life with somebody because your faith is going to be built up through the faith of others. Because, you know, here's the way it works. Maybe I'm going through something difficult or I'm struggling with something that's really challenging and I'm sitting at one of these gatherings and I'm talking to a person sitting across from me and then they start telling me what they've been through. And they start telling me what God has done in their circumstance. And all of a sudden, my faith is being built up and I'm being encouraged because I think, wow, the Lord did that for them. Well, I'm going to trust that God can do the very same thing for me. And I'm going to say, you know, I've got a similar story. You know, could you pray for me? Or better yet, could we pray together for one another? And these are all the things that happen, and that's why we absolutely need to come together. We have to share life together because it's one of the primary ways that God builds us up in our faith. So if you feel like your faith is weak, the first question is, are you really in God's word? Are you really leaning into it, and is it really getting into you? And number two question, if your faith is weak, are you really connecting with other believers? Are you experiencing through them the faithfulness of God? Because those are two primary ways that he'll help us with our unbelief, right? Through our growth in the word of God and through our fellowship with the people of God. And we're going to see at the very end of our text one more way that the Lord really helps to build up our faith. And one thing he does that will really help us to battle our unbelief, and it is a really good one, right? So stay with me. Don't leave early, right? But before that, let's finish this in verse 25. It says, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, so the crowd is now starting to press in, Jesus wants to act fast. So he simply says, it says, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. So this wasn't just a temporary fix, right? You hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back, right? No more, no more. Anybody over 30 got that. <laughs> so then the spirit cried out, it said, convulsed him greatly and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. And I, what I love about this verse is, is it, again, almost seemingly without any effort at all, Jesus just casts out this demon and he restores this boy back to perfect health. Right? The demon makes this final display of this terrible strength. He knew he had to go and he wanted to do whatever damage he could on the way out the door, but it wasn't lasting damage, right? So the crowd is amazed and the demon is gone and the boy is free and no doubt the father is overwhelmed and overjoyed. Jesus had just done right, what the faithless disciples had failed to do. And now Mark gives us in verse 28 the rest of the story. Verse 28 says, when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? 
So finally they're away from the crowd. The embarrassed disciples say, hey, look, what went wrong? And the answer that Jesus gives them has been, I have to tell you, it's been the subject of a bit of unnecessary debate. It says in our last verse, it says, so he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, some of your translations may or may not have those last two words, and fasting. And it's because some of the sets of the earliest of the ancient manuscripts don't seem to have them included. Now, we are going to leave that debate with the scholars who love to argue about that stuff. Because whether they're there or whether they're not there, the point is clear. Because both prayer and fasting, they're both avenues by which we develop an intimacy with God and by which we draw close to God. And what Jesus is telling them here, the bottom line is that they had failed because they had not prayerfully depended upon God's power. Right? It isn't that praying alone or, or praying and fasting makes us more worthy to cast out demons. It's that prayer and fasting, what they do is they draw us closer to the heart of God. What they do is they put us more in line with the power of God because they both are an expression of our total dependence upon God. Right? No one can expect to have the power in the realm of the Spirit unless they are in intimate touch with God himself. And so here this morning, as we look in the context of this passage at the subject of our faith, what we need to take note of, and this is that third thing I said we'd see of these three different things that the Lord does to help us with our unbelief, here we see that, I think, faith that manifests itself in power is very closely connected to our prayer. Right? So we're, we're building our faith and we're battling unbelief you know, through our growth in the word of God and through our fellowship with the people of God and through our consistent prayer and our intimacy with God. It was their lack of faith that resulted in the lack of power so that the disciples couldn't deliver the demon-possessed child. And Jesus says very clearly that the one thing that would have made all the difference in their success was more prayer. And the sense isn't that they should have stopped and prayed harder or prayed more in that moment when they were there with the crowd trying to cast the demon out of the boy. The sense is that they went into that conflict with the enemy in a spiritually unprepared condition for what it was they were facing in the moment because they hadn't cultivated that power through prayer in advance of the confrontation. Right? The disciples could have thought, well, how, how in the world did we have time to fast and pray? Right? After all, you know, how did they know that this kind of a problem was about to be laid at their feet on that day? Well, that is precisely the point Right? We never know when the moment and when the need for some sort of miraculous ministry is going to come our way. So we need to maintain this kind of a life of connected prayer. Because let me tell you, when the crisis moment is before you, right, at that point where they bring that demonized child and lay him in front of you, it is too late at that point. The nine disciples failed because they had been careless and they had been 
prayerless in their personal intimacy with God. Now, we're not told exactly why or, or how that happened. It could have been that they just became too confident. They were too self-confident, right? Kind of riding on the train of their past successes. You know, maybe they had become a little lazy while Jesus was away up there on the mountain and they had just kind of fallen out. Of, they kind of neglected their normal discipline of prayer. All that we know is that they had gotten to a point so much so that even that authority that Jesus had given them back in chapter 6 to cast out demons, it was ineffective because power and authority is only effective as it's really exercised in faith. And that faith had to be cultivated through this continued, consistent spiritual discipline and devotion, right? So there is this sort of a, there's a direct correlation. There is an absolute connection in the spiritual realm between our prayer and our faith, right? Prayer is really where we see that spiritual power of God enacted and applied and released into all of the different situations and circumstances in our lives. And this is what I want us to understand because this is the secret sauce of spiritual power, right? It's prayer that fans the flames of our faith. Right? Our faith is built up through prayer and prayer builds our faith because prayer itself is an act of faith, isn't it? If I don't pray, what does that simply mean? It means I'm not depending on God. It means that I don't think I need God to work here in this situation. I got this. I can take care of this all by myself. Isn't that what we're saying when we don't pray? But when I do pray, I am demonstrating my trust in the Lord. I'm saying, God, I believe that you are there. I believe that you can work. I believe that you want to work. And I believe that you do reward those who seek you diligently. So I am coming to you for this. And as we pray, you know what happens? We pray and we spend time and we spend that intimacy with God. And it naturally has this impact of strengthening our faith because we are tapping ourselves in to who he is we start to become much more keenly aware of all of the things around us that he's doing. Because as we pray, what starts to happen is we really start to see that he's answering prayer. And that just strengthens our faith. Because we know that the things that we see happening are direct answers to those direct prayers that we prayed. We said, hey, this is something that I prayed about. This is something that I asked God to do. This is a situation that seemed like an impossible situation, but we prayed, and wow, look at what God just did. But here's the problem. Most Christians don't really pray. Now, you know I'm talking about all those other Christians at all those other churches, right? Those who I'm talking about. But it's a fact, right? And I'm talking about prayer beyond. God, help me. I'm in trouble. Okay, great. Thank you, Lord. I'll be back with you in three more months when I'm in trouble again, right? Not that we shouldn't pray those prayers. We absolutely can pray those prayers when we need to pray those prayers. I mean, Peter's prayer when he was sinking was what? Lord, help. But those aren't the kind of prayers that cultivate faith. 
Those aren't the kind of prayers that release spiritual power. We need to pray way beyond that. We need to pray beyond our personal petitions for our own situations, and we need to pray into the realm of real intercession, where we're praying for spiritual breakthrough in this battle that we're in against the enemy, right? Because the Bible talks about prayer as labor. We labor in prayer because prayer is work because we are engaging head-on with the enemy in his realm. Engaging head-on where we can really do battle, and it's challenging and it's hard work. And so there is something just built into our own fallen fleshly human nature when we even think about prayer on that kind of a level. It's like, oh, well, I'm too tired for that. I'm just going to binge Netflix instead. Or you know what, I think I'll just scroll social media for a while and maybe I'll come across a prayer meme that I like and I'll just pray that. But you know, this is kind of what we're at today and God help us, we have got to pray. We've got to learn to pray and it's got to be more than just Lord help me. It's got to be way beyond that. It's got to be, Lord, there's a world that is under the control of the devil. And Lord, we are praying that you would break the power of the enemy over this area. And we're asking you to pour out your spirit and do a new thing and do a fresh thing. Do something powerful, Lord, in this circumstance, in our culture or in my life. Right? We are the people of God. We are the intercessors and we're the ones that are called to make this kind of intercession before God. Did you guys know that we have a prayer meeting each and every Sunday right before service right here in the sanctuary. Now I know that three of you know that. <laughs> now you all know that. Can you even imagine what would happen if everybody showed up? Can you imagine what would happen in our church and in our ministries and in the outreach and the impact that we would have in our city and in those ministries that reach way beyond our city? And this isn't some sort of a spiritual guilt trip. And if you think that it is, then you just don't know me very well. But what this is, is it is a strong exhortation simply to the reality that there is an entire realm of untapped power that's available to each and every one of us through prayer. And it's power for us individually for those impossible situations where we need the Lord's intervention and we need deliverance, but it's also power for us corporately where we want to see this kind of breakthrough and we want to push back the enemy's advances. And I know that we are running out of time we're probably over time, but I just want to say this as I invite the, the worship team to come back up, is that every one of us has faced times in our Christian lives where we've experienced this same sense of defeat and frustration or fear and doubt because of our own unbelief. And here we've just seen these three painfully practical ways that we know that Jesus will help to build us up. Right, to build up our faith and to battle our unbelief, right? So through our growth in the word of God and through our fellowship with the people of God. And then we just need to slather over all the top of that just a healthy, heaping bucket full of that secret sauce that really brings it all together. And that's that consistent prayer and that intimacy with God. 
So as we close in worship this morning, and poor Kirsten doesn't even know this, but she's going to learn it right with you. But as we close in worship this morning, I actually want to close in prayer as we worship. And not, I'm not even sure what this looks like, but Kirsten's going to start playing the song that she was going to play. And instead of us joining right in and starting to sing as the, the lyrics would normally come, I just want us not to sing at all, but simply to pray. And I want us to pray individually, and I want us to pray corporately. If you need prayer for something, I want you to raise your hands, and somebody will lay hands on you and pray for you. If you need to come up front and see Diane or come to Pastor Jeff, if there's something in your life that you need a breakthrough for, bring it to the Lord and bring it in prayer and watch him start to work. And as we pray and as we minister one to another, just for even a few minutes here, then when you're ready, then Kirsten will start to lead us in the words. And we can rejoice in what we know the Lord is going to do. We can expectantly look ahead to what we are utmost confident that he is going to do and work in a faith-filled way. Amen? Amen. So let's pray before we pray. Amen. So Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this morning. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together gather, Lord, as your people. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful encouragement, Lord, and the exhortation that your word gives us, Lord, and how important our faith is to you. Father, we thank you for the instruction on those different ways that you want to build us up in our faith. And Father, we want to pray even now for that to happen. Lord, we want to pray for those areas where we need to see breakthrough personally, Lord, and individually. Lord, we want to pray with one another. We want to pray for one another. Lord, we want to lift these things up and we want to leave them with you at the foot of your throne. Lord, and then we want to just watch and sit back and see you work. So Lord, we pray that your spirit would inhabit this place even as we do this now. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.